The following audio is from Redemption Church. More information about our church can be found at www.redemptionchurchlacombe.org. Thank you, Tim. Church family, let's study God's Word together. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn to Luke chapter 2 with me this morning. Luke chapter 2 as we come to our second sermon in this series of Songs of Christmas. And today, as we look at the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Last week, as I introduced this sermon series, I want to make sure that you understand I'm not preaching the song, I'm preaching the truths of the scripture and using the songs as a way to navigate and helping us to understand that some of these songs that we sing quite frequently at Christmas time, often we don't necessarily understand the backgrounds and the biblical truths behind them. That's the goal of this Christmas season as we look at just a few of those songs of Christmas. Last week, if you were with us, we looked at O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, as we looked at the longing that that song portrayed, that we clearly saw in Scripture that the people of God who were looking forward to the Messiah, the Emmanuel, to come. We saw it in Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, as he longed for the Messiah that was going to come, that John the Baptist, his son, was going to be the forerunner of that. We saw it in Simeon. The man who was there at the temple awaiting and when he got to see the baby after Jesus was born talked about that longing that he had had by the people of God. Anna, the prophetess, who was also in the temple at that same time, simply reiterated that very same thing and went out and told the people who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Today we come to a second portion of this storyline and we come to the element of fulfillment. Last week was longing and today is fulfillment. A little town of Bethlehem very much portrays this element of that longing that was looked forward to. And yet we also understand that this song tells us that that longing was fulfilled. And that's what this song portrays. Those of you who know this song, how many know this song? This should be an easy show of hands. Would anyone like to do this acapella? No, we're not going to do it. The little town of Bethlehem in that first verse, that first stanza has this phrase, as you see on the screen there, that the everlasting light has come. A little bit about this song. This was written by Phillips Brooks. Some of you may recognize that name if you did much of your history reading. Phillips Brooks was a pastor in Philadelphia. He was an Episcopalian pastor, but he also was the pastor who preached Abraham Lincoln's funeral. He eulogized him during that time. Uh, Phillips Brooks was known not necessarily for expositional preaching, but topical preaching, but yet he was a wordsmith, and he was used widely during that period of time. But he took a sabbatical in 1865 after serving for several years, and he toured the world, but it was Christmas Eve that night when he was in Bethlehem. And he attended a five-hour Christmas Eve service, in Bethlehem, and where he was seated was believed to be close to where Christ would have been born. He was moved uh, during that particular time, and the echoing of this amazing truth of the stillness of that night, how the world was so busy just doing all of its thing, but yet God was doing something when everybody else was not paying attention. Two years later, he wrote the lyrics to this the song, which was a poem at that time. And he wrote it for his Sunday school class, and he gave it to his organist and said, I want you to put music to this so we can sing it tomorrow. <laughs> now, for a musician, you would understand that's a lot of pressure to do so. And he stressed because there was no inspiration. He went to sleep that night, and he woke up with the music ringing in his ears. And the next day, on Christmas Eve, five Sunday school teachers and or six Sunday school teachers and 36 kids stood up and sang for the very first time, O Little Town of Bethlehem. It was his heart's desire to portray that God was doing something. And God was fulfilling something when everybody else was busy. And I think that this song reminds us in the very same way today. God is doing something. And sometimes we're too busy to recognize it. Let me read the, the lyrics just from the first verse 
of this song, and you will see what he is portraying based on what I have just said to you. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet, in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Don't miss the contract there. Yet, all the stillness that is there and all of the hopes and fears of all the years, the years of what is what I want to portray to you today, of all the years of God's promises, came to fruition on this amazing night when Christ was born. Today, I want to portray to you, I want you as believers to walk away not with just simply hearing a Christmas story, but I want you to walk away today with a renewed amazement of God's orchestration of His masterpiece as an artist to move people, nations, empires, to orchestrate details to get us to what we're about to read in Luke chapter 2. Many of us, I think, have read Luke chapter 2 probably many times and just simply read it maybe even on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning with your family or heard it read in a service or maybe you've read it with your small group and said, this is the Christmas story, we're just going to read it. But oh my my, I think there's so much more that's happening in the backstory to get us to Luke chapter 2, very much what I think Phillips Brooks was trying to portray for us in this first line of this song. Let's read this text, Luke 2. Verse 1 through verses 7. And I will draw your attention to a couple of things in this passage as we read it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end, I want to draw your attention to a word that is in verse 6. The time came for her to give birth. Now, many of us read that and we say, of course, Pastor, don't you know the way pregnancy works? You reach the full term and you give birth. But could it be that I think that Luke is possibly trying to allude more than just a full-term pregnancy here? That the time came for her to give birth. I present to you this morning that I think there's more than just a full-term pregnancy that Luke is trying to portray for us. Much in regards to what we have just read, the lyrics in the little town of Bethlehem, that all of things are still, but yet God was doing something behind the scenes to reach this particular moment. I want to help you to see, as a believer in God, that our God is not a God of coincidence or accident. That our God is one of sovereignty to orchestrate amazing things In this universe, and even over your own life, I pray that when you walk away today, you'll be amazed and be reminded that the God to whom you serve, if God can orchestrate the details that I'm going to portray to you today, then he's an amazing God that you can rest in, even if you've walked in here and your world is falling apart. This, I believe, is what God wants us to see, even from this amazing Christmas story right here in Luke chapter 2. I want to show you that this promise that we looked at last week reaches an amazing fulfillment right here in Luke chapter 2. Now, I'll point out to you again, not just the time element. I want you to notice again 
what we saw in verse 5, whom Joseph is connected to. He is of the house of who? David. It is a detail that we are seeing here. And Luke, the third thing I draw to your attention in this passage of Scripture, and we'll unpack each of these as we go. The third thing I draw to you is the very first thing that Luke draws to our attention, that in those days there was a census that was used by which Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Coincidental? Accidental? Just another city on the map? I don't think so. So let me show you also. I want to give you a couple of the passages of Scripture to be ready for, and then we're going to turn to one in a moment. But I'm going to give you two other passages, and then I'm going to give you an amazing history lesson this morning. I pray that it's amazing to you. It's amazing in my eyes in regards to the amazingness of God. And I'm going to give you much on the screen today, so I just encourage you to take many notes. I won't make you flip many times, but I do want you to have prepared Ruth, the book of Ruth, chapter 1, and Micah chapter 5. The book of Ruth 1 and Micah 5. Those are two that you'll get there. But for now, I want you to turn to Matthew 1 with me. And I want you to see some connectivity. And then we're going to go through the story of history. Matthew 1, you saw there that we saw Joseph and Mary are going back to Bethlehem because of the census. And I want you to see some connectivity to what is also portrayed very clearly for us in Matthew chapter 1 in regards to who Joseph is. Is. Matthew 1 is a genealogy of Joseph as it leads up to Jesus. The point of Matthew's gospel is to show us that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah from the line of David. Matthew also attempt is to be able to portray and to show that Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, came not just for Jewish people but for all people which we're going to see that next week when we talked about, oh, come all you faithful and the invitation for all people. But I want you to see some genealogical connectiveness here in this book. Notice just simply verse 1 of Matthew 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now notice verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, pay attention, Judah, that's a tribe. And then skip down to verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the who? The king. And now skip over to verse 16. We've moved through many generations as we reach the spot. And it says, And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. What is Matthew doing for us? And what I'm trying to make the connection for you of Luke chapter 2 is that when we see Luke recording for us that Joseph and Mary are having to go back to Bethlehem because they're from the lineage in the house of David, it's here is the lineage. We're talking about multiple generations going all the way back from Abraham, who was the father of the people of Israel, leading all the way up to David, who was the king, leading all the way up to Joseph, who was the father, the earthly father, and they have to go back because it was this particular heritage. Now, I remind you that Luke 2 tells us that it was time for Mary to give birth to a son. But what was God doing in the backdrop? What has God done all the way up to this particular point for Luke 2, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to be able to write this amazing story, to be able to say, it's time. I I sure hope that I can whet your appetite to understand that there is an amazing significance about the orchestration of God and the details of time throughout this amazing book. And what I want you to see today is giving you an overview very quickly to see what God was doing, not just in this moment with the census, not just around this birth that took place and the angel coming to Mary to tell her that she's going to have a child, not just Joseph being visited by an angel, but there's something that God was doing that was beyond and above them, that they just happened to get chosen to be a part of this amazing story that was taking place. Let me give you a history lesson. Some 4,000 years prior to this, all the way back to the beginning of creation, we're using the most conservative measures here in regards to the earth's age. But in 4,000 B.C., 4,000 years before Christ, the very first promise that was given by God of the Messiah that was going to come in Genesis chapter 3 
verse 15. After Adam and Eve had sinned and given in to the temptation that Satan had given them, God visits them. He addresses them in the garden. He provides provides a, a better covering for them other than the fig leaves that they had been using. So he makes a sacrifice for them. And then he spoke to Adam He spoke to Eve, (coughs) excuse me, and then he spoke to the serpent. And this is the word by which he gave to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word Jesus is not used there. The word Messiah is not used there. The word Emmanuel is not used there. We're not given many details, but this is the first promise that is given to a 4,000 year later time that would come. So when you read Luke 2 and it said the time had come, don't dismiss this. Don't divorce this from Genesis 3. It's the first promise that was given. He didn't give us a name. He didn't tell us it was going to be in Bethlehem. He didn't say there's going to be Joseph and Mary were going to be the mother. He didn't tell us there's going to be angels who's going to be making an announcement. He just simply said he's coming and he's going to win. Fast forward 2,000 years after that. Genesis chapter 12. The promise of one that was going to come through Abraham who would bless all people. Now I'm capitalizing the one because in all of these there's a thread line in all of this history that God is doing something. Don't tune out this morning, church. Hear this beautiful orchestration from Genesis all the way to the gospel. And if God's going to orchestrate all these details, he's still orchestrating amazing details. In Genesis chapter 12, God spoke to Abraham. Abraham was from the land of Ur, which was of the Chaldeans, some 2,000 years, which was also called the land of Babylon. This is an amazing element. Here's a sidebar here. God calls Abraham out of the land of Babylon, which is the same land that the people of God are going to go back to when they're in exile. What amazing detail. God calls him out of the land of Babylon. And it's in Genesis chapter 12 that he says to Abraham, leave your homeland, leave your father. And he says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. The blessing's not you, Abraham, but in you. Abraham's not giving any details. This is what's unfathomable at this particular moment because Abraham doesn't have any children. But God is promising in this particular moment. Again, fast forward 2,000 years in Luke chapter 2, and Luke tells us the time came for Mary to have a child. You cannot convince me that it was just because she had reached full-term pregnancy. Are you hearing me this morning? It is this 2,000 years that God is working and orchestrating and what we know by this by Abraham. And the Bible tells us that Abraham believed this promise and God credited to him righteousness. That's a picture of salvation, church. He's saved by faith. God says it again. I'll fast forward. This one's not going to be on the screen for you, but I would give this one to you. Genesis chapter 22, verse 17 through 18. When Abraham did have a son, it was Isaac. God said to him, take your son up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And Abraham obeyed. And when Abraham raised the knife, God spoke and there was a ram that was caught. There was a substitute What a beautiful foreshadowing in regards to how God is going to provide for us a lamb who's going to take our place. And it's in that moment, in Genesis 22, verses 17 through 18, God says to him, he doesn't use the word in you, and it's in that passage in Genesis 22, he says, in you, your offspring shall be a blessing to all people. And it's Paul who quotes Galatians, excuse me, quotes Genesis chapter 22 in Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4. And he says, and when God said in you, he was speaking about Christ. Some 2,000 years. And then you fast forward a few hundred years. You have Abraham who got Isaac. 
And then Isaac gave birth to the son named Jacob. And Jacob's name, he had a meeting with God. And God literally rocked his world, put his hip out of joint and changed his name to Israel. And it was there that God made this nation of people. And then there was 12 sons that God was going to bless through Jacob. And at the end of Jacob's life, he lines them all up and he blesses them. And one of the sons, his name was Judah. Do you remember what I pointed out to you in Matthew chapter 1? The genealogy, he was, Jesus was from the line of Judah. What did God promise in 1700 B.C.? That there was going to be the promise that there was going to be a king who would reign forever from the tribe of Judah. It was Jacob, blessed Judah, and he said these words, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. The scepter shall never depart, meaning that ruling staff, that kingly rule. Again, the promise that is made was not, hey, his name is going to be Jesus. Hey, it's going to be Joseph's going to be the father. It was simply this wonderful promise that God gave 4,000 B.C. to Adam and Eve, to the serpent. There's going to be one that's coming to Abraham, going to bless all people. It's going to be through you. And now we're getting more refined. This wide swath promise is beginning to narrow down. Now it's just not going to be from you. Now it's going to be a king that's going to do it. And we get all the way up to a few hundred years more in 1100 B.C., in the time of the judges, and God is going to have to protect this promise of this future Messiah through this amazing story, the book of Ruth. Turn there with me. I had you ask, I asked you earlier to have your finger ready for the book of Ruth. Some people have wondered, what's the purpose of Ruth being in the Bible? Because we see this narrative take place. I remind you, I tell you, that what I'm trying to portray to you, this whole book's purpose is for one thing is to show us the streamline, this theme line, that God is preparing for us a Redeemer. This book is about redemption. And the story of Ruth portrays this narrative in regards of God promising and orchestrating and moving people for the sake of this promise that He gave in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. There was a day of famine is what's taking place. Read with me. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land, and a man of where? Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Don't miss that statement. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. That's going to come back up when we read Micah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left there with two sons. These two Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them Food. Now I'm going to paraphrase and summarize the rest of the story for you. And we're going to read a passage in chapter 4. You have these people who are of God's people, people in Judah, from Bethlehem, and they leave Bethlehem to go to Moab. Now according to this particular story, what we see is they're trying to find and solve the situation for themselves. Probably stepping out of God's will here in this moment to go over to Moab. There's a famine that's here in this particular land. And when they go out of this land, her husband dies, her sons dies, and now she's left with two daughters-in-law, and she's going to go back because she's heard, she's heard now that God's providing for the people back in Jerusalem. So she goes back, and Orpah stays back in Moab. But Ruth says, where you go, I'm going to go. Where your people's going to be people, I'm going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God, and she goes back. And then God begins to orchestrate these amazing pieces in the story. Ruth goes out to work in the field and she just so happens to work in a field owned by Boaz. Now I'm quotation mark just so happened because I want you to understand of all the fields that she could go to, she goes to Boaz's. Now some of you already know in regards to why that's so significant. If not, I'm going to make your eyes open to this amazing truth. So we get to chapter 4. And what happens is Boaz likes her. 
I'm summarizing this very, very, very simply. He likes her. He shows favor to her. She's reaped an amazing harvest one day. She goes back and Naomi basically says, where in the world did you get all that stuff? And she says, I was in Boaz's field. And so then Boaz wants to marry her, but there's an issue. There's one person that is one relative closer to Naomi than Boaz is, and that's called a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. And so Boaz goes to him and says, look, if you want to take responsibility, you've got to buy the field. You're going to be the redeemer for her. And then he's basically saying, well, I can't do all those things. You can have her. And so Boaz says, I will be the kinsman redeemer. I will buy all those things, and then she then will belong to me. What a beautiful picture, again, of a foreshadowing of what Christ is going to do for us, that he's going to be our kinsman redeemer. He's going to pay the price for us so that he can purchase us so that we can belong to him. Boaz. Are y'all getting amazed by these things? I sure hope so. And so we see that Boaz purchases her. He buys her. And she becomes his own. And then they give birth to a son. I remind you that this family had gone to Moab. And the promise that has been given is it's going to come from the line of Judah. Now, Ruth chapter 4. Read with me now just in verse 11. The announcement is being made here that they're going to get married. And here is what the people are saying. Ruth 4 verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. And now fast forward down to verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, meaning that we have here that Ruth has had a son. And the name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of... Oh, my, my. Yeah. So what we see here, some when we had to Genesis 3, 4,000 years, God's saying, I am going to have a seed that's going to come from you, Eve, and we're not given any details. We get to Abraham and says that from you, there's going to be one that's going to bless all peoples. And we see that this promise is getting closer and closer, and Jacob blesses Judah by God's words and says, the king is going to come from You, it's going to never pass out of your hand. We get to Ruth and God is orchestrating and protecting his steadfast promise. So what we have here is we get this wonderful promise that Boaz is the great grandfather of David. But listen to me. But Judah, the promise that was given was the great, 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 great grandfather to David. And yes, I counted them. That's the right, correct grace. What we see here is this wonderful promise that it's not accidental that we would get to this particular moment, that she would just so happen to work in the field of Boaz, who was connected to David, who was connected to the tribe of Judah, who was connected to the promise of Abraham that was connected to Genesis chapter 3. So you get to Luke chapter 2 and it says it came time for her to have a child. It's amazing. I don't understand why some of you aren't dancing yet. And then fast forward to get to 1000 B.C. and we have King David. That's the purpose of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is showing us the connectivity to the purpose of this Messiah, this king that's going to come to date through David and to David. And then we have 1000 B.C. and then God tells them there's going to be a promise of an eternal kingdom. Remember this promise is just simply reiterating It's not a brand new promise. It's just making it very clear to David. It's a promise that God has already given from Jacob to Judah. And now David is in that line of that same promise. And now God speaks to him, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who's going to establish it? God's going to establish it. David's not going to make it happen. God's going to make it happen because it's his plan. That's the lesson we need to learn 
We try to make things happen, but we didn't let God do what he's going to do. And it's in this particular moment. He's bringing about this promise. So now we've gone from 4,000 B.C. We've covered a lot of time. We're at 700, or excuse me, 1,000 B.C. And then we move forward just 300 years more to 700 B.C. to the prophet Micah. Turn with me to Micah chapter 5. And I drew your attention to key words and places as we were reading the book of Ruth there. And this promise, and we, I can remind you again in Luke chapter 2, that Joseph and Mary are obeying the census that's given, and they have to go back to Bethlehem because of the census, because they were of the house of David. And in Micah 5, 700 years before Jesus is born. Now Micah, for those of you who are understanding all of biblical prophecy and scripture, we know that Micah is a contemporary, what we call it, who is preaching and speaking about the same time as Isaiah is doing. And what we understand is Isaiah was seeing much of history. He's speaking to the people of Israel. He's speaking to the people of Judah. But Micah's predominant audience was to the people of Judah. And it's here in Micah chapter 5. This, there's much that I would love to say to you in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. But for the sake of our time, we're going to focus on chapter 5. And I want you to see the promise that's given in regards to the Messiah that's going to come. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Is that not the people from Ruth? You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Do we know who the ancient of days is? We're God Almighty is the ancient of days. And Micah and the inspiration of the Spirit, now we're 700 years. Do you see how this promise is getting more clearer and more narrow. In Genesis 3, it's just one's going to come. In Genesis 12, it's there's going to be one that's going to be a blessing to all people. We get to Genesis further down. We get to Judah. It says there's going to be a king. And then we say it's going to be from the tribe of Judah. And then David's going to be from your line. And now we're saying it's not just going to be from your line. David's going to be from this city. Bethlehem, 700 years. Now, we know how cities and roads and things change over the many years. What happens if the city gets obliterated by that time? God would not be God. But we see here clearly that God is telling it from you from ancient days, verse 3, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. I told you, didn't I? Let's try that again. Didn't I? Okay. So when you're reading Luke 2, I want you to get this out of your mind. It's just not because she reached full pregnancy. It's because God was moving, orchestrating, and bringing this a beautiful moment to get this particular time when she's going to give birth. Why? Because Micah 5 says it. That's why. When he's saying it's a prophecy that he's going to come, he's going to come, we got to keep moving because I could just speak on each of these. But then something happens. There's a problem that happens in the storyline of the people of God. The people are disobedient. They're rebellious. If you remember what God said very clearly in Exodus chapter 19, I will be your God if you will be my people. And the people... Not God. The people broke their covenant with God. There's a beautiful psalm. We don't have time to read it this morning for the sake of our time. Let me give it to you. It's Psalm 89. Such a beautiful psalm. I was reading this past week just in my personal reading time. And in that psalm, it goes on to say, the specific psalm says, Although they broke their covenant, I remained with my steadfast love towards his people. And the people, this prophecy is given in 700 B.C. is that there's going to be in Bethlehem, but the people of God, the nation of Judah, rebelled against God. They listened to bad kings and they worshipped false idols. And so what happened 
is in 605 to 586 B.C., the people of Judah and Benjamin, meaning that even the the city of Bethlehem, the people who live there are exiled. They're gone. They're taken away. You can look at 2 Chronicles 36 to see this. In that particular moment, you have Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king, who takes the people out, and they go to Babylon, and they're there. And Jeremiah prophesied they're going to be there for 70 years. And while this is happening, you've got this promise that God said there's gonna, it's going to be born in Bethlehem, but you look in this moment, and if the people knew that, and they're sitting here and they're exiled, how is God going to do it when they've been so rebellious? When this same time frame... There was a young man at that time, his name was Daniel, who was also exiled to Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He had a dream of this this statue that was made of gold and then silver and bronze and then iron and the feet were iron and clay. And what was happening is Nebuchadnezzar needed to understand who that was. And so Daniel, who had the gift of interpreting dreams, he's brought in and he tells him, This is what this is. The gold represented Nebuchadnezzar. And all these other gold pieces represented the seceding kingdoms that were going to be. had Babylon, then it was Persia, then it was the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. But after that, there was a stone that was in the image. There was a picture. And so what God has revealed to Daniel at the same time, remember they're in exile and Daniel who's a worshiper of God, according to scripture, he goes to his window in the top room and he prays three times a day when this is an ungodly king, ungodly kingdom. And while he is there, this vision of a stone that's going to come and it says it's a stone that was not cut by human hand. And that stone that was going to come was going to crush and destroy all those kingdoms. And at the same time, it says, and God is going to make this kingdom fill the entire earth. Listen to me. This promise of the Messiah is not just so we can have a baby born. The promise of the Messiah, listen to me. If you haven't noticed it, listen clearly. The promises that were given from Jacob to Judah to God, to David. And what we're about to read from Daniel is that the one who is going to come is to not just be a savior. He's to be a savior and a king to rule, to reign, to fill the earth for people who can be redeemed from darkness and placed into his kingdom. This is what God said through Daniel. Daniel 2 verses 14. A stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And Daniel 2 15. But the stone that struck the image become a great mountain and filled the where? The whole earth. Do you know? Do you know where God has the gospel right now? Do you know where the gospel is going right now? It's around the world, church. God is not just about just restoring one nation in Israel. His whole purpose is so that the gospel, his kingdom, is not just for the Jews, but it's for the Jews and the Gentiles. It's right here in the book of Daniel. And then he says it in Daniel 2, verse 44. I love the book of Daniel. You've been missing on Wednesday nights. Daniel 2, 44. And in those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be what? destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand, how long? Forever. So if rulers fall, if Christians are persecuted, when Christians are slain, guess what? The king still reigns. The kingdom still ruling. The kingdom will be forever. Because we're not talking about a physical kingdom. We're talking about a spiritual, eternal kingdom. So when you get to Luke 2, and it says, And the time came for her to give birth to a child. It's the time for the kingdom to show up. This physical representation, because Daniel has said that this kingdom is building and it's growing in that particular moment. Well, they're in exile. What's God going to do? I remind you of a New Testament passage of Scripture that's not on your screen, but let me just give it to you. It's said a couple different times. That stone that's going to be the cornerstone 
is referred to in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 talks about that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. Paul says the church is built on the apostles and Christ who is the cornerstone. He is the stone. He is the one that is the one that we depend on and we rely on. Whether in exile, what's God going to do? God made a promise, did he not? He made a promise that the Messiah was going to be born where? Where? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Well, guess where all the people are? They're a thousand miles away in Babylon. So God is the one who orchestrates all things. That same chapter, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, God also says that he's the one who puts kings in power. He's the one who takes them out. And in 537 B.C., According to Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 that God rose up a new king. His name was Cyrus who was the king of Persia. And God moved upon this Persian ungodly king and put in his heart to send the people back to Jerusalem so they could build a temple for God Almighty. So in three waves of people, they're going back to their homeland. God had promised in 700 B.C. that the Messiah was going to be born where? So God is orchestrating now a totally new empire to overcome the Babylonian empire and now we have the Persian empire who's rising up. This is not just about who's got the strongest arm. It's about God who's orchestrating all this beautiful history so that when you read Luke 2 the time came. I hope when you read it your mind is blown every time the rest of your life. I hope when you're sitting around the Christmas tree and you're reading and you can't just say, it's not because she's nine months pregnant. Let me tell you. And then take your two hours to explain it. Go ahead and tell your whole family. Make the dinner wait. And then they go back to build the temple and they're disobedient. God has to send Haggai and Zechariah to encourage them to get going and get building. And Nehemiah comes to help them build the wall. And then what's amazing is in Nehemiah chapter 11... As the people begin to populate all the cities outside of Jerusalem, Bethlehem's not even listed. Do you know why? Because just like Micah 5 said, Bethlehem, you who are small. When 400 BC to Jesus' birth, we call those the silent years. That's what they've been called. But God is far from silent in 400 to B.C. to Jesus' time. Why do we call those the silent years? Because 400 B.C. is the last time that we have a prophet speaking. That was Malachi. Malachi was the prophet who forewarned, as we looked at last week, in regards to the Emmanuel that was going to come. There was going to be a forerunner. His name was going to be John the Baptist, who's going to prepare the way for the Son of Righteousness to come. And John the Baptist was born, as we see in the Scriptures and Zechariah spoke in regards to that John the Baptist, how he was going to be the forerunner to tell all the people about the son who was going to come. But then there was silence. But what was God doing in that moment so that when we get to Luke 2 and it says, at this time, she gave birth. Remember, there's different empires that are rising up. Persian Empire, then after the Persian Empire is the Greek Empire, with Alexander the Great, who comes in swift and he wipes out many of those areas and nations, and the empire spreads. But what Alexander the Empire or what Alexander the Greek Emperor does in that particular moment is he allows and creates the Greek language then to spread vastly over the entire empire. Do you know what that does? What that's preparing for is that after Christ comes and the gospel begins to spread, there's a common language over the entire empire so the gospel can travel. Amazing! And then the Romans come. Does anybody know what the Romans were known for? They built roads. So even though the Jews didn't like the submission to the Romans, they're building roads so that after Christ comes, we've got a Greek language, and now we've got a road system so that people, Paul as a missionary, can travel quickly to get the gospel out. I believe God knew what he was doing. So when you get to Luke 2, and it says, When the time came... 
Yeah. The time that the language is available and widely spread, that the roads are happen to be there. Do you think that God just says, I think now's a good time. I think God is bigger than that. I think God is orchestrating those things. Why do I say those particular things? And then, it's not just that, then we get to actually Jesus' birth. And now we're back to Luke 2. What is said in Luke 2? In Luke 2, verses 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And what's going to happen now is that Joseph and Mary have to go back to where? To Bethlehem. And she's very pregnant. This is a good long journey for her. But here what God is doing, if God has taken care of a Greek language and God has taken care of the Roman roads, and so now that his Messiah is in the womb of Mary, who is in the region of Galilee, in the city of Nazareth, which is not in Bethlehem, where God has said it's going to be. And so it just so happens that the emperor is going to give a census. Do you think that Claudius is sitting around in his, his room and saying, you know what, that there's a promise that says that there's, gotta be a, there's going to be a baby born in, in, uh, in Bethlehem, so let's make a census so we can get them back home. The answer, that's no. He's simply operating, and this is where I would say to you what Daniel says, is where God says he raises kings up and he brings kings down. It's God who is orchestrating because he made a promise 700 years before this moment in Micah 5, 2, you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, from you shall come one who will be a ruler from ancient days. Joseph didn't know that. Mary didn't know that. They just think, I've got to go back and register here in Bethlehem. It's a part of Caesar's role to get more taxes and count up all the people. But God, God was doing something. How many of us operate in our normal routine of activities and thinking it's just doing something when maybe, just maybe, God is doing something bigger than us? And then we look at this question we say, who in the world is orchestrating all of this. None other than God. This is why I've shown you in Luke 2, but let me give you another passage. Paul says in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Some of you thought I was crazy when I first started this sermon out and says, I think there's more in Luke 2 than just the time of her pregnancy. Now I hope you see, it wasn't just me. Paul said it. Micah said it. There's more. That when the time came, they understood that God was the orchestration of amazing details to give us the one who would redeem us from the curse of the law. Praise be to the king. Now, understand that Jesus, when he came, all these promises were connected to, I remind you, that he was not just to be a savior, he's to be a king. Do you remember what the wise men said when they showed up in Matthew? When they show up to Herod? Hey, we've come looking for the one who is the king of the Jews. Where is the king? Not the one who will become king, but the one who is king. All those promises of the one who's going to come, they're looking for him. And so at that point, Herod is actually scrambling to know what to do. Look at Matthew chapter 1 with me. Or Matthew chapter 2, excuse me. And I want you to see what happens. They're looking for where he is going to be born. And so Herod actually calls for all the scribes. He calls for all the Pharisees. And he asks them this particular question. And so they start digging through, amazingly, the scriptures to find out where is it said? And guess what passage they read? Micah chapter 5. And Matthew 2. 
verse 5. They told him, it says, this is read verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They knew that the one that was going to come was from there. Jesus came in this right time. But do you know that when Jesus began to preach, that the very things that he began to preach connect all of these things together? Because remember, these prophecies are that one is going to come. Certainly, when the angel shows up to Joseph and Mary, what do they say to name him? Name him, he's going to be called what? Jesus, because he will do what? Save us from our sins. His name Jesus means Savior. But did you know what Jesus said when he began to preach? Mark 1, 14 and 15. The time is fulfilled. Mm. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now do you see it? From 4,000 B.C., as God spoke to the serpent, there's going to be one that's going to come. From 2,000 B.C. to Abraham, there's going to be one that's going to bless all the peoples. And then even through Daniel there in some 6th century B.C., look, the kingdom's going to reign forever. It's going to spread throughout the whole gospel. And Jesus shows up and says, the kingdom is at hand. Let me paraphrase that for you. The kingdom is here. I'm it. I'm the king. And so in John 19, I'll fast forward for you in time. We don't have time to turn there. When Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate asks him, he says, hey, everybody says you're a king. What do you say to that? And Jesus says, for this I was born. I present to you that the one who came was not just born at nine month term just because that's the way it works. I present to you that what God was doing in all of history, in all of time, in all the events, from Genesis all the way up to the Gospel of Luke, at Jesus' birth, that God was orchestrating the Savior King to come for us, to show us that there's a kingdom that He wants to bring us into, that we can be a part of. It is an amazing fulfillment of history and orchestration of God's almightiness. You say, what do we do with that? We should just be in awe of his goodness and his greatness. But let's zoom out. Because his timing is far beyond 4,000 B.C. Because in eternity past, God said these words in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20. You were ransomed from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. It's not just 4,000 B.C., church family. It was in time past that God has orchestrated to bring us a king. What do we do with that? Man, I don't know about you, but just walking through the pages of history this week and placing all these things together, this just simply makes my heart grateful that the God to whom we serve is not a God who doesn't know about what's going on in our lives or know about what's going on in our universe and know what's going on in our planet, but we can rest in the fact that if God can orchestrate all these moments for this particular time, I believe God can handle whatever you brought into this room. But in this work of what God was doing, God was choosing not to place the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords into a very popular city. Jerusalem would have seemed sensible. It's where the temple was, where the presence of God was. But he chose Bethlehem. I remind you what was said in Micah 5, 2. You, O Bethlehem, who are too Little. If you don't remember that, you can turn there with me. 
once again. You can see it. Notice what the promise was. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth for me. I alluded to you in Nehemiah chapter 11, this place was not even listed. In time of Jesus' birth, it's probably less than a thousand people who were actually living in Bethlehem, some between five and eight miles from Jerusalem. Less than a thousand people who were there. Why Bethlehem? Well, besides the fact that God promised that's where it's going to be, but why Bethlehem? Is it not like our God to choose the least? Is it not like God to choose the unlikely to make his name known? This very town, Bethlehem, is called the house of bread. Do you remember what Jesus would call himself in John chapter 6, verse 35? I am the bread of life. According to Jewish history, Bethlehem was also a place where lambs would be born for the sake of the Passover in Jerusalem. Do you remember what Jesus is called by John when he approaches John the Baptist for baptism? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is it any significance that the Lamb, the one true Passover Lamb, would be born in a place where many other lambs were born. It should make sense to you now when it says that the angel appeared to the shepherds who were watching their flocks by night and they go over to where? Bethlehem to see what took place. I am amazed and in awe of the amazingness of our God to do this, choose this place, orchestrate this place. But I want to remind you as we wrap this up. All this amazing truth that I'm sharing with you this morning is not just simply to make us admire Jesus. Jesus didn't come just to be admired. He's not just simply like an art piece on a wall that we look at and be enamored at all this amazingness. This should bring us to our knees. Jesus came not to be admired, but to be received. That was the purpose of him coming. I'll read you the latter two verses of that song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. It is also what Philip Brooks articulated in that song. He wanted people not just to know that there was a stillness of the night and many people who were busy and God was orchestrating, but what he wanted people to understand is Christ came to be received. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Jesus said it like this in John 1, 12, 13, To those who would receive him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. I pray that you are amazed at this, um, this work of time of history. But I pray that you would understand it's not just simply to be admired but it's a king to surrender to. And I end with this last promise. Jesus came the first time and only a few people heard the announcement. If Jesus is going to orchestrate all of time and history and empires, kingdoms, people, a census to birth the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and simply to come in this stillness of that night. If God's going to orchestrate 4,000 years of written history to make it come to be, then we don't need to be looking back at his first coming. We need to see the promises of his second coming. 
And if there was a fulfillment of the first coming and all these orchestrations and events are taking place, I believe that what's happening is all the things we see moving in our lives and in our land and in our country and in our world, God is orchestrating once again for the return of the king. But when he comes, he's not coming just making an announcement to the shepherds. He's not coming in a humble, small, little town. He's going to come in blazes of glory. He's going to come, as Matthew 24 says, and every eye will see him. Every ear will know that he is here. He is coming. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 24, as he gave this promise that he's going to come again Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He is coming again. Just as Luke 2 said that he this, this particular moment and this time came, there's going to be a time that's coming again that he's orchestrating and it's later on this particular moment. In this same chapter, Matthew 24, there's 30, verse 36, Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour, but he knows the time. The fulfillment is going to happen. And so the question for all of us is, is he your king? Is the one who came that we've read about in Luke chapter 2 in that particular moment, is he your savior and king? If you read all this story and you hear this history, the question is, have you yielded to him? If not, the invitation is for you. He came not to be admired, but to be received. Receive him. Confess your sins. Acknowledge him. But for those of you in this room who have done that, that Christ is indeed your king and you are a part of his kingdom, then we must live We must live as grateful people that we have been rescued. We must live for the sake of the king who rules over us. We must live with confidence that our kingdom will never be shaken, never be destroyed, never to be overthrown. We've got to stop living so defeated and discouraged and downcast lives. This doesn't mean that your life may not be hard, but it does mean in the hardship, in the difficulties, in the sickness, in the trials, in the things that bring you down, may you understand and be reminded your king reigns. And if he is over all of these things, over all of the orchestration and details, we need to be reminded it's not about us. We are not the center of the universe. If God can move all of these people, there are nameless people in the history to bring all the things about that I've just said to you this morning. We're so concerned about our name, our accolades. May we flip the script and may we say, God, in your orchestration to make your name known. Yes, Lord, use us for your good and for your glory. But God, just use us that we understand we're just one piece One piece to all of what God is doing. May we just be willing to let him use us. That means that where you are, what you're doing, where you're working, where you're living, God has brought you here at this particular time, this particular place, this particular decade, this particular century, this particular millennium. Why did he put you in the family he put you in? Why did he put you in the generational line that he put you in? I don't know, but I just rest in the fact that if God can work out all these details, then I know that he's placed me where he wants me to be, and he's placed you where he wants you to be, and he's put us together as a church family right here to make an impact upon this North Shore. So let's serve the king. He came, so let's make the way. Let's prepare the way like John the Baptist did for the first coming. Let's be the forerunners and the trailblazers so that when people are not hearing, we can just keep preaching because we can say to them, the king is coming again. Let's make it known. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that as we look at your story, this amazing story 
in Luke 2 that when the time came for her to give birth was far more than a full-term pregnancy. Thank you that you have orchestrated history, people, kingdoms, empires to use a census to bring the king to be born where you said he would be born. We simply honor you. We worship you for being an amazing, gracious God. We are in awe of your fine details to bring about your plan. So Lord, my prayer this morning is that we would be amazed at these things as believers in this particular moment, right here, wrapping up 2023, jumping into 2024, that we would recognize if you can orchestrate all those details, then you have our details of our lives together as well. And that we would put them in your hands. Many of us in this room try to manipulate and make things happen for our benefit. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to lay them all down at your feet. That you would be the king over our days. You would be the kings over our lives. Lord, we don't know what all you're doing. But we know according to the promise that we've read about, you worked all things to bring about your first fulfillment. So we know that you are orchestrating and you are working all things for the second coming. So God, I pray that you would help us just to recognize and help us to surrender that whatever piece that you want us to play in your grand scheme, Lord, here we are. Use us. Use me, use this church for your good and for your glory so we can be heralds just like John the Baptist was to prepare the way for the second coming. So God, I pray for people in this room who are believers, who have been discouraged, who have been downcast, who have been depressed, who've been beat down, who've been overwhelmed by the things of this world that they're looking at or overwhelmed by what's going on in their life. God, I pray that today these truths, by the power of your Spirit, will lift them up, that even though they may not see light at the end of the tunnel yet, they know that you are holding time, and so you must be holding them. Hold them. Sustain them. Let them hold you. God, I also pray for those in this room who just look at this and they're enamored. So God, I pray that you would move them past being the admirers of this amazing truth and that you bring them to their knees. That they would realize that you came not just to be admired, but to be received. And so God, I pray if there's any in this room and any who are watching today who have not yet yielded to you as king over their lives, then God, in this moment, that they would be doing so that they would surrender all things to you. Lord, be the king over this moment, the king over this time of response, if it's simply just to worship you, or if it's simply to lay some burdens before you, if it's simply they need to come and surrender to you as king, then God, work in us and let us be obedient to you today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As we stand and as we respond, the prayer team will be here to receive you. If you need prayer, you come. You want to make an altar out of your chair, you can do that as well. You want to come make an altar out of this stage, you come, be obedient to what God has spoken to you today.